Hello, and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and today with me is one of the first inspirations of me as a teacher. Now, I've decided to be a teacher when I was in fifth grade, but the inspiration within on the day-to-day going into the classroom and inspiring my students, a little bit of that came from my, my guest. His name is Taylor Molly. And if you've ever heard that name before, if it sounds familiar, it's because his Deaf Jam, his Deaf Poetry Jam video, What Teachers Make, has probably been seen by every or many, many teachers. So let's get into it. Taylor Molly is a spoken word poet, teacher advocate, and game designer from New York City. His poetry is both accessible and literary. Molly is a four-time National Poetry Slam champion and one of the original poets to appear on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, the author of five collections of poetry and a book of essays on teaching. He is also the inventor of Metaphor Dice, a game that helps writers think more figuratively. He lives in Brooklyn, where he is the founding curator of Page Meets Stage, reading series at the Bowery Poetry Club. Please help me welcome Taylor Molly. Taylor, how are you today? I'm so great. Thank you for having me. Since you since you knew you were going to be a teacher at a in in fifth grade, uh, I cannot count you towards my 1,000 people uh, who I helped convince to become a teacher. But I'm glad that I encouraged you along your path. Thank you. I mean, yes, you you deserve that for recognition because it is true. Taylor, let's start with the same question I ask all my guests. Tell us who is Taylor Molly. The older anybody gets, the more different kinds of answers they could have to that question. I could give you my bio, but you just read it. I could tell you that I'm a 13th generation New Yorker, and I love talking about genealogy and family history. I would just say I'm a poet and a father and a husband and a former teacher. We could talk about whether or not I still qualify as a teacher, having left my classroom 21 years ago. Uh, I used to do, I used to be on the front lines of teaching. Now I just write poems about having once done it. That's who Taylor Molly is. So let's start at a young age. When did poetry start piquing your interest? Very young, because my father used to write these occasional poems that he would recite at weddings and birthdays. And then he would clink a glass. Let me just clink a glass to get your, 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 uh, you know, when, when we were at the, the wedding, everybody knew he was going to make a speech and people would hush down and say, Oh, great. I hope Alan Molly does one of his poems. And so very early on poetry for me, was a public art form. It was all about the recitation. It was all about keeping people interested, saying something sentimental, something beautiful, and something funny. So I wanted to be like my dad. And I probably saw him do his first poem live in front of family members when I was when I was five, you know, less than definitely less than 10. And I was like, oh, I want to be like my dad and make people make people excited to listen to rhyming words. All of his poems rhymed, all of them. Had he lived a little bit longer, I think I would have, I would have encouraged him and coached him 
to memorize his work. He never even attempted to memorize his work. So he always had a yellow legal pad on which he would just, from which he would read his poems. And he never, he would look up occasionally and make eye contact with the, with the audience, but he never learned how much more powerful a poem can be when you, when you memorize it, because suddenly you have constant eye contact and you, your, your hands, you're not, your, your hands are free. Now, a lot of people don't memorize their poems because they don't know what to do with their hands. So that's a freedom that they are not necessarily comfortable with. But to answer the question you asked, and I warned you that I do sometimes give longer answers than are necessary let's say between age five and 10. Excellent. And do you remember when you wrote your first poem? No, but I like to tell people that it was on my way back from Central Park. I grew up in, in New York. I said I was a, I'm a 13th generation New Yorker. So I, I grew up in this city and um, I had a babysitter who took me to Central Park and I stepped in dog poop on the way there. This was before New York City had a law that says you have to clean up after your dog. And Miss Wargo said, Taylor, you have to look down when you walk. So on the way back from Central Park, I was looking down and I ran headfirst into an old lady. And Miss Wargo said, Taylor, you have to look up when you walk. So I like to tell people that my first poem was about how life is hard. If you look down, you bump into an old lady. And if you look up, you step in poop. It's not actually true, but it could have been. And it's, I've said it so many times that in another year or two, it will be true. So tell us about the process of practicing poetry on a professional level. The biggest difference you know, being a poet is about just capturing the ideas and learning that when a great idea for a poem comes to you, particularly if you have already forgotten it once or twice and it takes another chance on you and comes back and you're like, oh yes, that idea, that poem is gonna be so great when I, you know, eventually sit down to actually write it. And I know I've forgotten this idea several times before, but it is such a good idea that I'm definitely not gonna forget it again. Uh-uh, no, don't make that mistake. You're gonna forget it again. So poets are people who know that they need to write things down just so that they'll remember them, so that they'll have a place to go to check if they don't remember them. So that's the job of the poet, whether or not you're professional or not. Professional means you're someone who gets paid for doing what you do. You're not an amateur, which is comes from, I guess, amorato, because you know it has to do with love. You do amateurs do it for the love. Professionals, eh, do they do it for the money? No, they still do it for the love, but it's what they that's their job, you know. I don't, I haven't taught in a regular classroom for 21 years, and I make my living, or at least before the before the pandemic, I really made my living going around teaching poetry and going to workshops and being the resident poet at a school for, for a day or a, a week or two. So the, the biggest difference of when, when, you, when you decide that your avocation is going to become your vocation, it changes your attitude towards the art because you're constantly, 
it, it, it's, it, it, it suddenly looks like a luxury to sit down and just write for no reason, which is how you got good in the first place. But now there's a little voice saying, that's not gonna make money. That's not gonna, this isn't gonna put food on the table. And it also, when people, when you're an amateur and people go, oh, we would love to hear some of your poems at the fundraiser that we're hosting for this worthy cause, you know, and you would be, oh, great. I would be happy. I would be honored to do a couple of poems at the people who've play, paid $150 a, a plate to, to raise money for this worthy cause. When you become a professional, you start going, really? You're not gonna pay me? I don't, I don't do this for free anymore. So it, it's, and that's kind of annoying to have that voice in your head that says, dude, you're a professional. That means you have to get paid. It used to be your art. It used to be what I did just for the love of it. And if I don't still write poetry for the love of it, then the reason that I got to be quote unquote famous for being a poet is gonna go away. So I always, I always still do things for free. And when people go to my website, which is exactly what you would think it would be, taylormolly.com, they can't write me an email through my website, but they can find my address of a mailbox that's just a couple of blocks away. My wife calls it my stalker box because she's convinced that women, like teachers at schools that I've visited are writing me love letters at that moment. They don't want, I, she doesn't want them to know that where we live in Brooklyn. So I have a, a you know, a mailbox, like just a UPS store a couple of blocks away. But they, so people who go to my website, they can still write me a fan letter, an old fashioned fan letter, like hand, handwritten. I think it even says on my website, I love, you know, if you want to hire me for a gig, here's the name of Anya, my, my agent at Blue Flower. But if you want to write me a, a letter, here's my address. I love handwritten letters and I will do almost anything for anyone who writes me a beautiful handwritten letter. If a kid says, I'm 15 years old and because of you, I've decided I wanna become a teacher and I won the school poetry contest reciting your poems three years in a row. Oh my God, that girl's getting a book, a signed book sent to her. You know, so that's, and that's, I feel like that's, I don't, I stopped getting fan email when I started making my email address hard to get. Now, you reached me, I think, through Facebook. Facebook. And people can still sort of find, since I, I got rid of my email, I scrubbed the internet clean of my email in you know a couple of years before Facebook was invented. And so now people are creeping in and managed to still reach me electronically. But anybody who, who cannot reach me electronically, who then is so anxious to reach me, they pick up a pen and write me a letter. I bend over backwards for that person. If you had not been able to reach me through Facebook, are you, do you want me on your podcast so much that you would have written me a letter? If I knew that was the option, definitely. Okay. Good, then I'm glad I'm here. I'll probably send you one as a thank you. 
Oh, good. Because you know what? Thank you notes are not the most important thing in life, but they're like sixth. <laughs> so when did Def Jam come into your life as something that you can be a part of? I was, I like to tell people this because it's technically true. I was the original most deaf. Now, let me explain. When Russell Simmons' brother, Danny, who's a painter and uh, very uh, artistic and has friends who are poets, uh, came to Russell and said, hey, listen, some of my poet friends want to put on a show, a live show of spoken word. And look, you've done Def Jam Records and you've done Def Comedy Jam. How about you lend your name to something that we could call Deaf Poetry Jam. And Russell said, I'm not convinced. Why don't you take a couple of assistant producers and put together a live show here in New York that you think, it, you know, what would the show look like? So Danny Simmons and a couple of local producers um, invited a couple of poets in in the year 2000 or maybe even 1999 and said, we're putting on a show, come be a part of this. And if, it, if all goes well, this will become a show called Deaf Poetry Jam. So I was in the first show and then they said, let's take this to the HBO Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. And if HBO decides they want to put it on the air, then we will go through the expense of actually producing the show. So in Aspen, Colorado, in March of 2000, we put on maybe the second or third, you know, version of Danny Simmons and, and they didn't have the director Stan Lathan involved yet, but Bruce George was one of the local assistant producers. And, and hey, they flew us out to Aspen, Colorado to, to put on this variety show as kind of like a dog and pony show for HBO. And they decided that they needed a host. And so I was the host. I was the host. That's why I, that's why I say I was the original most deaf. I was the original host of Deaf Poetry Jam when we were selling the idea to HBO. HBO probably said, we love it, we'll take it. But who's the white guy who was pretending to be the stiff MC? Couldn't you get somebody else like most deaf? So I feel like I helped them sell the show to HBO as a thank you perhaps, or because they knew it was a good idea. They invited me to be on the first three seasons of the show where I got to meet most deaf backstage. I know what his real name is. I don't think it's a secret. Sorry if I'm busting your secret, Dante. I think, I'm not sure he would remember my name, but he would remember that he'd heard me three times on the show and, and liked my work. But that's the story. And also, Deaf Poetry Jam was supposed to film the first episodes. We're going to film at the Edison Hotel in Times Square, New York, September, September 12th, 2001. Wow. So September 11th, like put the kibosh on that. Nobody could get there and they had to postpone it. I think we filmed in, in uh, late October of 2001, 
but it was great. It's great. And one of the best things, and this, uh, you're, you know, I am here to tell you, and I'm a, a poet and a spoken word artist, and I love the poetry slam, and I love people who understand that the art of presenting a poem is different than the art of just writing it. You can be a great poet, but if you're a terrible reader, nobody's going to know you're a great poet. But I will tell you here and now that the best part about Deaf Poetry Jam is that it was a half hour. It was 30 minutes long. So as soon as you started saying, you know what, I'm a little hungry. Let me just see if I can find old episodes of The Wire. It's over, it's over. And then most deaf comes out and says, thank you so much. Here's, here's Russell Simmons and Russell Simmons comes out and thanks everybody. You know, The Wire, The Wire ran, was what debuted on HBO the same month that Deaf Poetry Jam did. And we really wanted 10 o'clock on Friday night. We thought, oh, that's a great time for, for but that's the spot that The Wire got. And, uh, and, and Def, Russell Simmons presents Deaf Poetry, which is the technical name of that show. We got 11 o'clock on Friday night. And so for, for like five years, I didn't watch The Wire because I was convinced that they had bumped us from the superior slot. Good times, good times. And like you said, you had three distinct poems on that show. And right. at this time, I would like to break those poems down, if that's okay with okay. you. Sure. Let's start with the one that has inspired me all these years, throughout all these years, What Teachers Make. He says, the problem with teachers is what's a kid going to learn from someone who decided that his best option in life is to become a teacher? <laughs> He reminds the other dinner guests that, you know, it's true what they say about teachers. Those who can, do. And those who can't, teach. <laughs> I decide to bite my tongue instead of his and resist the urge to remind the other dinner guests that it's also true what they say about lawyers because we're eating, after all, and this is supposed to be polite conversation. I mean, you're a teacher, Taylor. Come on, be honest. What do you make? And I wish you hadn't done that. Asked me to be honest. Because you see, I have this little policy about honesty and ass-kicking, which is, if you ask for it, then I have to let you have it. <laughs> you want to know what I make? I make kids work harder than they ever thought they could. I can make a C-plus feel like a Congressional Medal of Honor, and I can make an A-minus feel like a slap in the face. How dare you waste my time with anything less than your very best. You want to know what I make? I make kids sit through 40 minutes of study hall in absolute silence. No, you may not work in groups. No, you cannot ask me a question, so put your hand down. Why won't I let you go to the bathroom? Because you're bored and you don't really have to go, do you? <laughs> I make parents tremble in fear when I call home at around dinner time. Hi, this is Mr. Molly. I hope I haven't called at a bad time. I just wanted to talk to you about something that your son said today. He said, leave the kid alone. I still cry sometimes, don't you? And it was the noblest act 
of courage that I have ever seen. I make parents see their children for who they are and who they can be. You want to know what I make? I make kids wonder. I make them question. I make them criticize. I make them apologize and mean it. I make them write, write, write. And then I make them read. I make them spell definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful over and over and over again until they will never misspell either one of those words again. I make them show all their work in math class and then hide it on their final drafts in English. I make them realize that if you've got this, then you follow this. And if somebody ever tries to judge you based on what you make, you give them this. Here, let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Teachers make a goddamn difference. Now what about you? Taylor, what inspired this poem? What teachers make is based in truth, as all my poems are. I make it sound like I went to a dinner party and a lawyer um, inadvertently uh, insulted me and the entire teaching profession by essentially saying anybody who was dumb enough to become a teacher knowing how poorly compensated teachers are should not really be allowed to be one. And then he said, come on, Taylor, be honest. What do you make? That's, it didn't quite happen like that. It wasn't a dinner party. It was a New Year's Eve party. And the lawyer who asked me that question was actually the host of the party. And what I don't say is that it was his parents' brownstone on the Upper West Side. And it was a party for over a hundred people. And he looked amazing in his tuxedo and he was six foot five and very good looking. And when he said, be honest, Taylor, what do you make? Which he probably didn't use those words. That was probably me the next week writing the poem about what I wish I had said. This poem is the, the poem, What Teachers Make, is totally a poetic rewriting of history to make myself sound smarter than I actually am. He probably <laughs> used some other words, but his point was the same. Taylor, tell me what your annual salary is because I'm a first year law associate and I make $85,000 a year. And come on, you're, you're even smarter than me. So how could you be so stupid as to make, I'm sorry, what is it you make? And so, um, you know, the next week I probably said, how can I pretend he asked the question so that I, in the rest of the poem, can spin it around and say, you want to know what I make? I make kids wonder. I make them question. I make them criticize. You know, that's the, that's the, the, the what I do. That's the linguistic turn in the poem is all on the, on the word make. You want to know what I make? I make a goddamn difference. Now, what about you? But what I actually did was I looked him in his eye and I said, I make $28,500. So I, I think I wanted to uh, rewrite history and make myself sound smarter, but it is totally based in truth. And that poem, you know, I wrote it in New Year's Eve, 1998. So I wrote that in January, 1999. Later on that uh, year, I put it up on my brand new worldwide website. 
which is, still has the same URL. And it, the, the poem, you know, got, got separated from my name for almost a decade. And people would quote that poem. There are a lot of anonymous versions of my poem floating around the internet. And it gets sent out to entire school districts by well-meaning superintendents who ended up plagiarizing my work. And uh, it's my own fault because I put it up on my website with a button saying, click here to see some of my poems. And then you click on that button and it takes you to another page that says what teachers make. It didn't say what teachers make by Taylor Molly. And then the first line, because you need to put your name between the title and the text. That's way, That way, if anybody copies and pastes the text of the page and forwards it, they capture your name inadvertently. But it's all true. All my poems are based in truth, even if they didn't exactly happen the way I say they did. Performing a poem is versatile, versatile. And I'll be honest, I've seen YouTube videos of you performing this poem and that snarky laugh evolves from mm. the first few times that you perform it to when you perform it on Def Jam, you know which one I'm talking about, right? <laughs> he says the problem with teachers is what's a kid gonna learn from someone who decided his best option in life was to become a teacher. <laughs> yeah. That one. Can right. you tell us how that snarky laugh evolved? It's well, that's how a lot of wasps in my family laugh. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my mother used to laugh it's on the intake right you go <laughs> i think i was making fun of my mother and it's just but it's such a snarky weird sound that when i perform it live in front of a living breathing audience it seems appropriate but when i saw myself on deaf poetry jam like on video it's too weird. It's too weird. And it's too loud. So now I now I sort of do something in between. Uh, sometimes I bring it back. But performing, I went to perform my, my first, before I published a book, my first book is called What Learning Leaves. But two years, or no, four years before my first book, I put out my first CD, which was actually a cassette tape. I had a, there's a cassette tape my first uh, poetry recording was called The Difference Between Left and Wrong. And it was a collection of, of, a collection of recordings from various different readings that I'd given. And when you're in the National Poetry Slam, when you make it to the finals, you've got all the energy and you are performing poetry. You know, in a poetry slam, Scorecards are given to five randomly selected, drunk, racist, idiotic, homophobic idiots. And they are given the power to decide what is good and what is bad. And in general, the better performers move on. So when you get to the finals, these are the four teams and the individuals who are really good at performing poetry. And you're in front of an audience of about 2000 people. And you can, like, I know you're gonna talk about like Lily, like Wilson uh, coming up. And what I found that when I was preparing to go up and do that uh, 
for the finals, you know, that poem ends with, um, so I finally taught somebody something, namely how to change their mind. And I learned in the process that if I ever change the world, it's going to be one eighth grader at a time. Now, I'm talking to you. Um, I can see you. Your listeners cannot see us, but we're doing this over Zoom. You told me before the broadcast started that my Yeti microphone is doing a great job. I've got a little windscreen here, and I know that this is the appropriate voice for a podcast. But when I was doing that on the final stage, I was yelling. You know, I finally taught somebody something. I'm still, I'm not yelling because I know it's not appropriate, and my kids are sleeping in the next room. I finally taught somebody something namely how to change their mind and i learned in the process <laughs> that if i ever change the world it's going to be one eighth greater at a time and ah, you can just hear so i i i go to the national i probably brought that out at the national poetry slam in 1995 and i go to record another album with a friend in his you know garage studio and so he sets it all up and it's just me and the mic and him in front of the in front of his uh you know control panel and i perform it the way i did at you know a month ago at the national poetry slam of 1996 and he stopped we stopped and he said dude what was that who who are you performing for? And it was just, it was not appropriate. So part of being a good performance poet is realizing what, what the levels are. What, what do you need to do here? What does your voice do? What does the room want to hear your voice do? What are the variations you can do with your voice? So is this, I think you asked about the laugh. I, or, or did you, did you, did I answer the question you've asked? Yes, yes. And you went off on a tangent, just okay. like I said, you, you're allowed to do. You um, all right. You ready for the next question? Mm -hmm. Taylor, have you seen the TED Talk by Rita Pearson called Every Kid Needs a Champion? Yes, absolutely. I have. That is how I model myself as a teacher. What about Ex it? Excellent. Because she says in practically the middle of the talk, that she had a student who missed 18 questions on a 20 question test and she put plus two on it. She did not put minus 18. And you say during your poem, I can make a C minus feel like a medal of honor. Absolutely. Right. That's the it, same thing. We're saying the same thing there. And I can make an A minus feel like a slap in the face. How dare you waste my time with anything less than your very best. Now, where I go on to talk about you know, dealing with the grade grubber who comes to me and said, how come you gave me an A minus? I only, I've only ever done A work. And you go, okay, that's, yeah. So why aren't you doing it for me? But no, absolutely. If you can give a kid the, the grade they deserve and make them feel proud about it, Rita Pearson in that says, you know, he go, the, the, the kid asks her, Miss Pearson, is this an F? She goes, yes. Well, then how come you gave me a smiley face? Because you're on a roll. You didn't get them all wrong. You got two. You got two right. So absolutely, you got you to gotta meet kids where they are, celebrate their successes, and make them feel, you know, make them feel good about coming back to school. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Um, go Mean, speaking of definitely, you say, I'm going to have the students write 
definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful until they will never misspell those two words ever again. Right. Taylor, why did you choose those two particular words? Because they gave me trouble and I know that I'm not the only one. Definitely, I was taught the correct way to spell the word definitely by Stuart Moss, who was my ninth grade English teacher. And he said at the collegiate school for boys, okay, gentlemen, I'm going to teach you the definitely song, which will teach you to spell the word definitely correctly for the rest of your lives. It goes like this. There is no A indefinitely. That's it. That's the whole song. And we said, wait, that's it? That's gonna, aren't there other ways to, to misspell the word definitely? He's like, yeah, there are a few, but the most egregious ones are the ones where people try to put an F. Definite, definite, definite. If you just tell yourself, there's no A, there is no A indefinitely, um, you're, you're, you're probably gonna get it right. And we all told him, Mr. Moss, that is the dumbest mnemonic device that we have ever heard. We are going to forget that before we go to sleep at night. Guess what? That was in October of 1978. And I still remember it perfectly. Beautiful, I only remember because the kid next to me didn't know how to spell beautiful and was brave enough to raise his hand and ask the teacher. And she said, well, why don't you go look it up in the dictionary, but watch out because if you really don't know how to spell the word beautiful, you're gonna take, it's gonna take you the whole rest of the period to find the page. He finally did and it took him 20 minutes and he said, B-E-A-U? So it's so odd that the A that kids, that everybody thinks is in the word definitely actually is in the word beautiful. B-E-A-U. So I chose those words just because I had little, little backstories. In fact, uh, there's a, you know, the, my book of essays on teaching is kind of a long explanation of the poem. It's kind of doing what you're doing right now. And I'm going to make sure that you have a copy of it. It's called What Teachers Make in Praise of the Greatest Job in the world. And it's kind of a line by line explanation. And I tell those two backstories of the word definitely and beautiful. But the other one that I, the other word that I almost chose to put in there is business, because I, it's tough to spell business and parallel also. You know, you threw a curveball there because I, until you told us what the meaning of it behind it was, I just assumed that it was because the phrase definitely beautiful is beautiful. It's inspiring, but no, you were just like, no, there are backstories to no, both those words. But interesting. But if I ever write, when I write a memoir, it's going to be called definitely beautiful. Oh, that's great. All right. Let's transition to okay. like what you said, like Lily, like Wilson. Right. In New York City, please give a warm gift poetry you welcome to Taylor Model. I'm writing the poem that'll change the world, and it's Lily Wilson at my office door. Lily Wilson, the recovering like addict. The worst I've ever seen, so like bad, that the entire eighth grade started calling her like Lily, like Wilson, until I made my classroom a like-free zone, and she could not speak for days. But when she finally did, it was to say, Mr. Molly, 
This is so hard. <laughs> now I have to think before I say anything. Well, imagine that, Lily. It's for your own good, even if you don't like it. So I think I'm writing the poem that's going to change the world. And here comes like Lily, like Wilson at the office door of my place of business. She is having trouble finding sources for a paper that she is writing for me about how homosexuals like shouldn't be allowed to adopt children. They all seem to argue in favor of what I thought I was against. And it took four years of college and three years of graduate school and every incidental teaching experience that I have ever had to let out only, well, that's a very interesting problem, Lily. But what do you propose to do about it? That's what I want to know. And the eighth grade mind is a beautiful thing. Like a newborn baby's face, you can often see it change before your very eyes. I can't believe I'm saying this, Mr. Molly, but I think I'd like to switch sides. And I want to tell her to do more than just believe it, but to enjoy it. That changing your mind is one of the best ways of figuring out whether or not you still have one. Or even that minds are like parachutes, that it doesn't matter so much what you pack them with so long as they open at the right time. Oh, God, Lily, I want to say, you make me feel like a teacher. And who could ask to feel more than that? I want to say all of this, but I manage only, Lily, I am, like, so impressed with you. <laughs> so I finally taught somebody something, namely, how to change her mind. And I learned in the process that if I ever change the world, it's going to be one eighth grader at a time. And like you said, we're going to go ahead and skip the question of, is this inspired by a true story? Because you say that all of the poems are based on truth. Well, and so this I want slightly different, but go ahead. I'll, I'll okay. Yeah. Because of mind. time, I okay. want to jump ahead to the first question is who picked the topic about adopting from same sex couples? Was it you or her? Her. And Lily Wilson, I never taught an actual student named Lily Wilson. So the character of Lily Wilson is a pastiche, like a mock-up of several different kinds of students that I've had. I've had lots of students who had the like disease, who like couldn't like get through like a sentence without like saying the word like, like 16 times. And this one time teaching college in graduate school in Kansas in the early nineties, I had a 19 year old freshman and she was the one, Bill Clinton had, had just been elected president and gay adoption was a hot topic. So when it came time, no, let's see, it was a persuasive essay. So it must have been, you know, spring, spring of 1992. And well, it's not, maybe it was 93 because Clinton was elected. Uh, I'm not getting my dates wrong, but he was, was elected in 92 and became president in 93. So maybe it's the spring of 93. I'd already been there. I was about to graduate. And she wanted to write about how um, gay, gay couples shouldn't be allowed to adopt children. And I had just come from California. I had driven from California to Kansas in my convertible Mustang 5.0, which is a wonderful gas guzzling car. And the dumbest car to own in Kansas in the winter. And I was, my hair was long 
and everybody thought I was a communist and they actually called me Comrade Molly, which I encouraged. And I was more liberal than anybody there, surprise, surprise. But I knew that it was a wrong move to tell this 19-year-old Kansas freshman that she was a provincial, bigoted, homophobic idiot. I didn't even know what the word homophobic, nobody had invented that word yet. Hello, it was 1993. <laughs> and so I just... I reminded her of what the requirements were for the paper, that you have to have these this many sources, and these are the questions that you have to ask of your sources to make sure that they're legitimate. And I let her come back to me the next day and say, I can't find any research that really backs me up except for the Bible. And uh, you said, <laughs> I can only quote that for color commentary. And so I said, well, what are you going to do? Now, in the story, I, she says, in the poem, she says, I think I want to switch sides, right? And that's, and I, that's, in fact, the original title of the poem that you call Like Lily Like Wilson, which I now call Like Liam Like Wilson, which we can talk about later if you want. The original title was Switching Sides because that's the most important thing that happens in the poem. It's not about a girl who says like a lot. And it's, it's about educating yourself to the point where you decide you can change your own mind. Now, I never would have let, that did not come from my teaching eighth grade. I did teach eighth grade. I did have eighth graders who had the like disease. I would never let an eighth grader pick that topic. Freshman, 19 year old freshman, fine. You want to do that? Go ahead. But you know what? You're going to need these sources. So that's, I mean, it's all, it's all based in truth. I wish I could remember what the name of the, of the 19 year old, um, she was very smart, very smart. And if truth be told, she actually came to me and I said, well, what are you going to, you know, if you want to change your topic, you totally can. What's your new topic? And she said, well, my new topic is that lesbian couples should be allowed to adopt children but gay men not quite so sure about that so we, we uh I, I think i let her do that and you know it was 1993 we celebrated the small victories where we could definitely now you said a few things that sound like quotes you say changing your mind is the best way to figure out if you still have one right is that a quote from someone else or did you is that, are you the original author of no, that? No, that's a bumper sticker from the, from the late eighties, early nineties. And I thought that everybody would know. And the other one is parachutes are, minds are like parachutes. They only function best when open. Right, right. Something like that. Yes. And that was a quote as well, I think from that's Charles. Quote. It's from a bumper sticker. And if I'd known that people were going to think that, I, if I'd known that people were going to credit me with those phrases, and I still, I see this today, as Taylor Molly says, you know, minds only, parachutes and minds only work when they're open. Um, I would have, I would have said like the bumper sticker says, you know. Okay. But no, no, those are, those were established quotes. And I thought everybody would know, oh yeah, I'm quoting the bumper sticker. Let's see if we can return to Liam Wilson towards okay. the end of the podcast recording, but I do want to move on to like, you know. In case you hadn't realized, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> or believe strongly in what you're like 
saying? Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows and you know what I'm saying? I've been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences, even when those sentences aren't like questions. <laughs> Declarative sentences, so called because they used to like, you know, declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things that are like totally, you know, not. <laughs> They've been infected by this tragically cool and totally hip interrogative tone. As if I'm saying, don't think I'm a nerd just because I've, like, noticed this, okay? I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions. I'm just, like, inviting you to join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. <laughs> to our conviction. Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been, like, chopped down with the rest of the rainforest? You know? Or do we have, like, nothing to say? Has society just become so filled with these conflicting feelings of that we've just gotten to the point where we're the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a long time ago. So I implore you, I entreat you, and I challenge you to speak with conviction to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the bumper sticker, it is not enough these days to simply question authority. You gotta speak with it, too. Totally we, all know, we all know those stereotypical blondes that add upward inflections at the end of their sentences. We saw it a lot in Mean Girls clueless and you it got to the point where you just made an entire mockery of it like a lot of people have but you definitely added your own oomph to it like declarative sentences and stuff like that so take us through what inspired that particular poem now that poem unlike like lily like wilson the, totally like whatever you know is ungendered completely ungendered. I'm making fun, I speak in the voice of someone who turns everything they say into an interrogative question, you know, even declarative sentences. And th so the reason I changed like Lily like Wilson to like Liam like Wilson is that I didn't want to be accused of piling on young women for the way that they speak because young men and everybody equally have the problem of using the word like inappropriately. And yet it is women who get sort of tarred with the reputation of a valley girl. I taught at an all boys school. I probably had more students who were male who like said like, Mr. Molly, like when, like are the papers do? Why did I make that character, Lily Wilson, 
female, probably because the rest of that story is based on the 19 year old freshman. But when people used to say, when people started saying, oh yeah, like Lily, like Paul, like Lily, like Wilson, that's the poem where Taylor Molly dumps on shames young women for the way they speak. I thought my first reaction was, no, it's no, it's not. No, and oh no, you're right. You know, I'm just, I'm just dumb, I'm just playing off the stereotype. And so I I changed it. I'm gonna just change it to like Liam like Wilson, and I will shame young men for the way they speak for the rest of this poem's life. Unlike that poem, totally like whatever is non is not gendered. And if anything, I'm since I am the one who's speaking like that and I am. Um, cis male, you know, I'm, uh, people should, I see it as, as me making fun of my generation. And it is, it is me making fun of my generation. Too often though, young people think you're making fun of our generation. I was like, no, I was making fun of the interrogative tone of my generation so that y'all would speak better than us. And unfortunately I failed and you don't. So that was, my brother used to call that the outdoor educator's voice. If you ever go on a camping trip or one of those month long camping trips and you have an outdoor educator, my name is Logan and we're gonna be studying the white-tailed deer. The white-tailed deer flashes its tail to show a sign of danger. And he, I found that so funny when my brother would mock the outdoor educator's voice that I said, oh man, I'm gonna do a poem about that because I have students who speak like that as well. And that, um, and that poem ends with, uh, and this is another quote, uh, that's the one that ends with, uh, with the line about authority, right? It is not enough to simply question authority. You have to speak with it too. Now that, I don't know whether I came up with it. Is that another bumper sticker? It's not enough <laughs> to question authority. You have to speak with it too. I think I may have come up with that. And then the bumper sticker is plagiarizing me. Let's just, we'll go with that's that. That's funny. We'll go with that. And you say something that's very interesting. You say, I'm inviting you to join me on the bad wagon of my own uncertainty. Mm. How do you come up with something like that? That is mm. amazing. Mm. Uh, you just have to be amazing to think of things like that. That's pure genius, I'm afraid. <laughs> you are amazing, <laughs> just, Mr. Molly. I just got lucky. I invite, I'm just like inviting you to join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. That is sort of what the, what is behind the, the instinct to speak like that is the, the, the failure to want to take a stand, especially, and things have only gotten worse in our culture if the first time you make a mistake and say something wrong, you, that might be it for you. So a lot of people have thought, well, then the best thing to do is never take a stand, never let anybody really know what you believe. So things that I think might be true, I will present them as a way that, in a way that if they, turn out not to be true, I can say, I totally didn't actually believe that at all. I'm just like inviting you to join, join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. Yeah, that's all. That's what I can say about that. Okay. Now, 
as a poet, you have to be understood. But there's one part where you say conflicting feelings of yeah. <laughs> okay, how how do you how do you introduce this sound effect into a poem <laughs> and still make it make sense? Oh, I've got well that I'm talking about what is it? We've just become the most inarticulate generation to come along since you know, like a long time ago. I can't remember what the lines are in that. Um, all these, I've just got all these conflicting feelings. Uh, that poem is all about what it means to be articulate. And in order to illustrate my point, I needed to be entertainingly, not only inarticulate, but entertainingly unintelligible at times. No, well, I was just going to say, as a teacher, I make those noises all the time with yeah. my students. And you must have developed it with interacting with your students because yeah. that there was, you know, I just classic example. A student says, you know, Mr. Suko, can I get an eraser? And I'm like, okay, here it is. And class is finishing. And they, they're they literally trying to erase their mistake. They're trying to erase the entire paragraph. And I'm, and I'm like, you need to go. You need to go. Can I get my eraser? Please. Like, please. <laughs> And I'm just creating these noises. And I think that you are using that to your advantage and it works. It just works. What age do you teach? Sixth grade this year, but I've taught sixth and seventh and eighth my, my entire career. Okay. So middle school. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and do you want to stay there or are you waiting for a job in the upper school to open up? No, I like middle school. Good. I like the 11 to 14 range. They're yeah. maturing and... They're hilarious. I have if to say, they, if, the, if the head of the middle school or the head of the school ever says to you, Hector, where do you see yourself in five years? You should say doing exactly what I'm doing. I'll just with five years more experience, experience. I'll be better at it. Definitely. I loved, I loved teaching middle school. And I suspect, I mean, there are two types of teacher, teachers. There are probably more, but I can only count to two. There are the, the, the teachers who, co who coach, um, the teachers who dazzle from the front. Look at me, look at me, listen to the noises I make. I am more interesting. I'm going to make this lesson come alive. And that's the kind of teacher I was. I suspect that's the kind of teacher you are. Hello, you now went off and created a podcast. There's another kind of teacher and they coach quietly from the back and they're, they're coaches. And the, the, our kind tends to get most of the attention and start the podcasts. But the other kind do just as good a job. I just want to put that out there. And you say, well, we should speak with authority. What advice would you give to people to speak with more conviction and authority in their lives? Start by eradicating um, ah, uh, and er. Those nonsense words that we put in the middle of our sentences when we're thinking because we don't want, because we're so afraid of silence. We're so afraid that pausing in the middle of a sentence to find the right word is going to make us look stupid that we decide the better strategy is to fill that silence with, uh, that's you know. what, that's what makes, and you know, that's what makes people look stupid. So if you can become comfortable 
with the silences that naturally occur as you are thinking of the right words, suddenly, I mean, no single thing that I have done to the way that I speak has served to make me sound more eloquent than I actually am, than that. I don't say um, ah, or er much anymore. And then, and then I suppose speaking your truth in, in the humblest, truest, clearest way possible. Also, people often continue to speak until they get the ending that they think they deserve. And, and that makes them blather on. If you have a sense of what you want to say and you've got the beginning and the middle and the end, then there's nothing more powerful than getting to the end of your sentence and shutting up. Good advice. Taylor, what is the process of writing poetry for anyone that is thinking to dip their toes in it? Put your ass in the chair and get the pen to paper or the keys on the keyboard. And tell me something important. John Keats said poetry is truth and truth is poetry. Truth is beauty is truth and truth is beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And I feel like what he was trying to say is the most beautiful thing you can say in the world has its own truth to it. And the most truthful thing you can say in the world will carry with it its own beauty. When people sit down and tell themselves that they're gonna write a poem, too often they aim for beauty and end up with cliche. So I tell, if you, if you wanna start writing a poem, try aiming for truth. Aim for simple truth. Try to say the truest thing you possibly can. And it'll carry with it its own beauty. Beauty is easier to add to a truthful statement than truth is to a beautiful statement. By all means, try to say something beautiful, but it's better to aim at truth. If you aim at beauty, you end up with the golden sun. And aren't there certain rules or certain parameters when it comes to poetry? Like some poems rhyme, some don't. Some have certain amount of syllables in each line. Some sure, but don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Don't, don't get caught up on that. I just, just write. The reason why poems don't rhyme as much anymore is all of the greatest rhymers are not writing poems anymore. They started writing popular songs and now the greatest rhymers are all rappers. And so they don't, uh, poetry, rhyming in poetry fell out of fashion in the mid 20th century. When Simon, when Paul Simon decided he didn't want to be a poet, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan decided they didn't want to be poets, they were going to write songs. If they had decided to be poets, we would have more, we would have continued to have more rhyming in poetry in the latter half of the, uh, of the 20th century. Although, you know what? I love rhyme. And you know who else loves rhyme? The human ear. The human ear loves rhyme. So I still rhyme in my poems a lot but it's not regular rhyming couplets. I don't have a philosophy for rhyming that's overly mental. I just try to rhyme and make it sound 
accidental. See what I did there? Wow. <laughs> Taylor, what advice would you give to teachers today? Uh, why would you be listening to me? Why would you listen to me who has not actually taught like you for 21 years? I would say never lose sight of the joy that might have drawn you to the classroom in the first place and look for opportunities to see the light bulb go on over a kid's head because that makes it all worthwhile. I spoke at an education conference a few years ago in Amsterdam and I was the the last speaker and uh, the only one who didn't speak Dutch, which is shameful because I am Dutch. I come from Dutch, Dutch heritage. And I just did my normal thing, taught, a, did my poems about the joy that I felt in the classroom. And, and this one woman came up afterwards and said, you were everybody's favorite speaker. I said, oh, well, uh, I'm so glad that you feel you speak, you can speak for everybody. And she said, no, no, it's true because the five other speakers before you spent their entire 20 minutes talking about what was wrong with education and what was wrong with pedagogy today and what needs to be fixed and how we can do things better. And you just talked about how much you love teaching and how much joy there still is in the classroom. And I learned about the concept of edu-joy, E-D-U, joy, edu-joy. I'd never heard that. And that's just, that's the, the you know, there are, there are things wrong in, in education. It is horribly underfunded. The whole concept of funding public schools through, through um, real estate taxes makes utterly no sense and you know contributes to the inequality and there are so many things wrong with education today and nevertheless nevertheless i love this job i love it and you need to love your students even if you don't like them especially if you don't like them the ones you do not like you need to love right that's my advice Taylor, how can people find you online and want to get more information about you and your work? TaylorMolly.com is probably the easiest way. Although, you know, no, probably following me on Twitter at Taylor Molly, Molly spelled like the African country, M-A-L-I. If you can find me on Twitter or if you can find the device for writing better poems, metaphor dice, which I invented a couple of years ago. I'm picking up a red die, a white die, and a blue die, and I'm rolling them on, the, on my desk. And I get, my father was a bootleg kiss. The bootleg kiss of my father. That is a metaphor. Let's do another one. Let's see, I don't have anything to write about, Mr. Molly. Well, why don't you write about how Happiness is, a, happiness is a burning promise, the burning promise of happiness. So I wrote this, I invented this thing called Metaphor Dice. And if you can find the Metaphor Dice account on Instagram, it's metaphor underscore dice. Join me for Metaphor Monday, which I do at 9 p.m. every Monday. 
on Instagram live. I have a different guest and we explore one poem. We each write three, not one poem, we explore one metaphor. We each write three short poems based on the metaphor. Um, I don't know when this is going to run, but I'll just tell you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing a, uh, the metaphor for this coming Monday is tears are an ancient compass. Um, after that is going to be my father was a bootleg blessing. And I've got it. I've scheduled them a couple of weeks in advance. And uh, we, we, me and my guests trade a poem live. And then people from all over the world who happen to be watching join us on Instagram live and offer their poems. I give away a lot of free sets of metaphor dice. So if you ever want to see me do a poem, Instagram, uh, live for one of my Metaphor Monday shows is probably the best bet. Or follow me on Twitter. Uh, and maybe, you know, I'm beginning to do shows live again. Where are you? What state are you based in? I see a beach behind you, but it's a virtual beach. Miami, Florida. Oh, okay. So it's maybe it's not a virtual beach. I'm not going to, um, I don't have any plans to go to Florida anytime soon. And until you guys get your pandemic under control, I don't, I, I don't think so. Um, but I'm beginning to start doing, um, doing shows again. And people who follow me on, on Twitter find, you know, they know where I'm going. Excellent. Taylor, any last thoughts? Well, I wanted to make sure that you all knew about Metaphor Monday and, uh, uh, metaphor dice. I'm I, my my daily. What I do is I wake up in the morning and I have to work out. I have to be a good father. I've got little kids um, who I had relatively late in life, and um, and then I try to sell more metaphor dice. And if you can go to metaphordice.com to get a set of metaphor dice which is slightly better than Amazon. But if you really want a set delivered to your house by, you know, this afternoon, you can buy Amazon. Uh, uh, you can buy Amazon. You can buy Metaphor Dice on Amazon. And happy writing. Um, stay in the classroom. Have a wonderful year. Be safe, Hector, and God bless. This episode is called What Teachers Make with Taylor Bali. Taylor, it has been an honor having you on my podcast. It's truly been an inspiration. You have been an inspiration to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very sweet to say that. Thank you so much. All right, Taylor. Thank you again. And this does it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>